Hello and welcome to the Poetry Exchange. I'm Michael Schaefer. And I'm Fiona Bennett. Lovely to be back with you, Faye. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Michael. It's been really great. We've had lots of people being in touch since the last episode through various means and ways. The Twitter, the SoundCloud response area, comments area, I should say. Uh, Facebook, really, really lovely and really specific responses to people who've been listening and enjoying being alongside us with Poems as Friends. So just thank you to everyone who's been in touch and um, we look forward to hearing some more from everybody. I'm very excited about this episode. It's with a fantastic man called John Crowley, who is a theatre director and a film director. Recently he's directed the film uh, The Goldfinch, of very successful novel he's turned into a film. Uh, he's also previously directed a film called Brooklyn. And uh, he's also a theatre director. I've just been working with him at the Old Vic in uh, Lucy Preble's play A Very Expensive Poison. He's a fantastic guy. And early on in rehearsals, it kind of came up that I was involved in making this podcast and he was interested in what it was about. And it turned out he has uh, an interest in poetry. So it was like, OK, once we, <laughs> once we get out of the play, I'm going to see if we can get John to come on and uh, talk to us about a poem that's been a friend to him. And he accepted the invitation readily and uh, with some enthusiasm, which was just fantastic. And it is, I think, Michael, one of those conversations where... Uh, we never we never ask to see the poem before somebody comes through the door. So there's always that rather exciting moment when the poem is revealed. And I don't know about you in the conversation, but uh, I read the title of the poem, which I guess our listeners might have uh, connected with as they press play. I don't know if you've heard the title of the poem yet uh, as you're listening to this, but um, I read the title and then the poem began in that little moment where we read it to ourselves and uh, it was an Im- Im- immediately an extremely arresting poem. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think, yeah, I just hope that for everyone listening that they get taken inside this extraordinary poem with the same level of surprise and journey and expansiveness that uh, I felt in the experience of being with you and John with it. So without further ado... You'll be listening to myself and Fiona talking about The Death by Heroine of Sid Vicious by Paul Durkin, the poem that's been a friend to John. So, have you got three copies of a poem with you? Yes. Would you like to? I think I have it. It'll be lovely. Thank you so very much. Bottom half. Mm. Ooh. Okay, this is completely new to me. Excellent. Okay, great. Can I ask you to read it out for us, John? Yeah. There, but for the clutch of luck, go I. At daybreak, in the Arctic fog of a February daybreak, shoulder-length helmets in the watchtowers of the concentration camp caught me out in the intersecting arcs of the swirling searchlights. There were at least a zillion of us caught out there, like ladybirds under a boulder. But under the microscope, each of us was unique. Unique, and we broke for cover, crazily breasting the barbed wire, and some of us made it to the forest edge, but many of us did not make it, although their unborn children did, such as you whom the camp commandant branded 
Sid Vicious of the Sex Pistols. Jesus, break his fall. There, but for the clutch of luck, go we all. That's just an amazing poem. Wow. (laughs) And I didn't know it. You must know Paul Durkin, though. Yeah, I know Paul Durkin. I don't, yeah, more of him, to be honest, than knowing him well. I'm not sure I understand what's going on. Okay. Uh, let me come at it from this way. Uh, you, Durkin is one of the greatest poets to come out of Ireland, in my opinion. Mm. He may not be as um, well-known, certainly not as well-known as, as Seamus Heaney or maybe even some of the other contemporaries, but he's a completely distinctive voice. And I think that what struck me about this poem, and I read it a long time ago, um, was that it was, it was pulling together two sets of imagery both of which were very, very familiar to me, into a context which indeed didn't make sense to me either. And somehow blasting a light on the human condition in the middle of it all. Although that last bit of the sentence didn't really strike me till years later. So Paul Durkin was the first poet I owned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, right? It was the first book of poetry I went out and bought when I was 17. Mm-hmm. And the idea of owning a book of, of poetry was an odd thing. I didn't, you know, I mean, I, my brother was a big reader, my sisters were readers, but it, I don't know, it was, it, maybe it's a prejudice against poetry, maybe it's too specialised. It felt like an odd thing to actually go and buy. Poetry you did at school, mm. and there were a few poems that absolutely knocked the top of my head off in school. Proof Rock being the one, that was, I can remember the Tuesday afternoon when that like, right? So I, I felt like I had a relationship to poetry, but it was almost like secretive, and actually going into the shop to, buy, to put cash on, on the... Um, on the barrel head, as it were, and, and buy this book. And I almost felt slightly self-conscious buying this book of poetry. And I loved the slightly crazy sense of humour in his work, mm. which skewered at the time how strange a place Ireland was in the 80s, mm. where you had um, priests lecturing and bishops lecturing everybody, and then it turned out that they had three love children on the side and things. And he was... He was ahead of it all in conducting all of this and, and in writing poems which absolutely nailed the hypocrisy and were laugh-out-loud funny, but also with a real lyrical gift. He also seemed to um, have a gentle humanism in him, a generosity of spirit. Mm-hmm. So the combination was very, very unusual and entirely appropriate to helping you understand slightly confusing times. Like a lot of kids in growing up in school in the, in the 80s, post-punk was a very, very big thing, as was heavy metal, and the two never, never really met. And I also loved David Bowie, which was somewhere else entirely. Mm-hmm. So I was quite sort of um, Catholic in my taste, should we mm-hmm. say, right? I, I just seemed to love it all. But I also do remember um, buying a copy of Nevermind the Bollocks by the Sex Pistols. This is in 1985, okay? Long after it's done and dusted. This is, at that point, the album, you could say, was heritage. But the colour of it and the, and the, the sound of it had lost none of its potency on, on my 15-year-old ears. It felt like a dangerous, slightly incendiary thing to put on the record player. And the, the other side of this is a language of something which I was very familiar with by then, which is this sort of um, escape movie, the Second World War, you know, the great escape. Mm. So, so, you know, the, the well-worn 
tropes of the searchlights, of yeah. going under the wire, and the of you know, and, and all of the helmets, and to intersect these two things, which have no relationship to each other w- w- in terms of time, um, f- sort of fused my brain in a not very good way. The first time I read, I was, I, I just had the same reaction to you, which is, well, well, I don't get that, but yet it had an effect on me, and mm. it was one of the first examples of a poem doing to me which is what I love poetry to do to me which is when it hits me on a level other than intellectual for the first time and when it when it sort of goes into whichever bit of you it goes into and sits there like a benign virus and that it will flourish or it will reveal itself when you incubate it for a certain amount of time and it will begin to make sense of itself in you. That's what I love about this poem, and that, that's why it felt like it, it opened up um, a little bit of an interior landscape to me and, and helped me trust uh, that your understanding doesn't have to just be conscious understanding. But some of the really interesting things that happen are the things that happen when words reveal themselves later on, whether that's through rehearsal, through performance... Mm-hmm. Or with, with poetry, just through quietly rereading and returning to it a, a few years later, which is what happened with this. I hadn't read it for many years, and the copy that this is photocopied from is um, from the anthology Being Alive, and reading through it, and bang, there it was. And I maybe hadn't read it for 15, maybe even 20 years, and, and uh, it made a lot more sense to me then maybe because I've read a lot more poetry in the meantime, or maybe because it's just been sitting in there all those years, I don't know. But it then began to strike me as uh, quite a major poem, actually, yeah. as, a, as a huge poem in which he sort of unpacks or, or, or echoes two different kinds of nihilism, you know, one which is a grand-scale historical nihilism of, of death camps with a sort of... dare I say it, lighter kind of nihilism, but the nihilism which I understood when I was 15, which was the pop culture nihilism of of punk. And that's why I find it quite moving, the poem as well, is that it still has um, uh, an expansiveness to it and a a generosity of spirit to it. Yeah. And a, um, a compassion to it, rather than a a a more closed, shut-down quality. I loved what you were saying about you're not necessarily... It's not necessarily an immediate intellectual understanding, if anything, far from an immediate intellectual understanding. And yet, I I wanted to ask you how much the language itself Mm. is in some way part of that. With this, definitely. The the, the language in this is very Mm. particular and unusual rhythms. It doesn't offer itself up. Um, at all and and it's you know one of the things that he is famous for is his own readings of his poems mm-hmm. he's a, he's an incredibly performative reader and you may know him from he he recorded a song with van morrison called in the days before rock and roll i don't know and he speaks the closest thing to the way he speaks is he's almost like an irish christopher walken it's mm-hmm. almost like the emphasis is off and in oh, yeah an odd place 
And that gives it a gloriously jangly, particular quality to itself. So it, 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 and it feels like it has that in there. And when you're reading it aloud, it catches you out. It doesn't quite want to trip off the tongue. Mm. And it slows you down all the time. And he is a very emphasized, enunciated quality. It's not slipping along quietly. It's, it's, um, it's a difficult read. How did it feel reading it just now? It sort of feels like it's got quite a, an, an undertow, or a, a, mm. it pulls you back, and then the, and then the end is a sort of emotional release. There's yeah. something very um, that last blessing is is very emotional, and the repeat of the, you know. But I also th- the thing that struck me is that the clutch of luck. It may well be a colloquial phrase. I don't know that I've ever heard it. It may be. I know he, he was born in Dublin, grew up in Mayo, or spent a lot of time in Mayo, so. Maybe it's a West of Ireland phrase, but I, I don't know the clutch of luck. And it's such a particular sound and idea um, and an image. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it, that? Yeah. And it, it, it moves from there, but for the clutch of luck, go I. Yeah, yeah. To go we all. I know. And, and um, it, you don't quite know who's talking in a way, in, it, in, in mm. that way of, you know... The, it seems it, 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 he seems to be the subject at the start. Shoulder-length helmets, you know, uh, watchtowers, concentration camp caught me out in the intersecting lights. He's caught, mm-hmm. you know. Um, a zillion of us. Yeah. I love that he that he says a zillion of us. A zillion. That's like it's, it's the kind of thing you have as a kid. You talk yes. about as a kid, isn't it? A million gazillion yes. billion. You know, you make mm-hmm. up silly numbers. Yes. There were at least a zillion of us. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not a real word. It's almost an unimaginably large number, isn't mm. it, yeah. for emphasis. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. That thing of the scale of that and then the scale of ladybirds and boulders yeah. and then the scale of our uniqueness and our anonymity yeah. in, mm. a, in, a, mm. in a kind of death camp situation. Yeah. I mean, that's just brilliantly done, isn't it? Yeah, and vulnerability of yeah. all those ladybirds. Yeah, it's incredibly tender, isn't it? The way I think the ladybirds does so much mm-hmm. to give us that in the middle of that because he's got to give us the brutality and... And beauty. You know, it's, yeah. it's not... It's, I mean, it's just an unusual choice of insects to have under the boulder mm. in the context of what he's writing about. Mm. It's, it, it, nothing about... Mm. This poem is anything less than completely surprising mm. to me. And sometimes... In a, in, a, in a poem, that can be an off-putting thing. It, it can be just too excluding to you to be able to find your way into it. And yeah. I still don't quite know how he manages to do it in this one. Mm. But it never, it never doesn't affect me, as it were. It, never, it, never, it hasn't lost its power. So just in that, mm. for you, mm. that turn that happens around the unborn children, such as you, whom the commandant branded, what's, what, how do you make your way through that? Well, you know, I, I, when I was first thinking about this many few years ago, many years ago, I think my memory was that I assumed that... Oh, that must mean that Sid Vicious's dad was in the Second World War. Oh. 
Right. And I, I, I don't think that, that, I don't know that's true. I've never found out whether it is or not. I, I mean, because it always seemed to me that what one of the th aspects that the, um, the punk iconography was doing was, was sticking it to the sense of what happened to the country after the Second World War, either the triumphalism or the failure of it in this mm -hmm. some sense. And it was, it was mocking. It was the younger generation going, you know what, I'm going to wear a swastika. I'm not going to listen to you telling me in the war we fought, you know. So coming to it later on, that image struck me as one of the saddest images in it. And, and I wonder if that's because um, I'm a dad now. Right. Which is, so, so the... I don't know, the desperate idea of, you you know, unborn children, I mean, literally, you think, God, what, what, is, what does that mean? Somebody died before he ever got to know his child, and, you know, I mean, it's a very, very particular image that mm. just... Well, the children they never got to have. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. What do you make of Jesus break his fall? I think it's like a blessing. It's it's um yeah, it's 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 a blessing. It's it's the fall in a, in a literal sense and in a biblical sense. So the, the great big biblical fall, okay? Sure. But but in in a death sense in falling, dying. And in an imagistic sense it's sort of the characters who didn't get away with Steve McQueen in the in the Great Escape when they you know that rattle of machine gun and they get caught in the in the in the searchlights outside the mm. fence. Yeah, I mean it's brilliant the way you can simultaneously see all three falls. Yeah, happen mm. in that image in that just in those four words and just placed where they are right and there. And it's still happening. It's sort yeah. of it's present tense. Yeah. Mm. It's as if he's observing it, going, "Oh my God, look at that! That's every one of us," mm. and, and offering a blessing, even though the blessing—I don't know that he—that he—it it, it doesn't feel to me like he's appealing to a real living Jesus. It feels like it's a phrase. Uh -huh. God bless him. You know, it's a form of saying, mm. uh -huh. "Peace be with him." It, yeah. it's it, that rather than a, an actual prayer. We have this, you know, we have this investigation of the poem that's been a friend to you and you've, mm. you know, in many ways you've completely spoken only about that and so beautifully and inspiringly. Mm. Mm. Um, but I just, just was wondering about that idea of friendship and, and whether that friendship has changed mm. uh, or the significance of that friendship kind of when you first... Mm -mm connected with it what that what that means that re particular relationship what that meant then what that means now if that's it's kind of binary to me in a way because the first time i encountered it i was um very young mm -hmm. <laughs> I, 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 you know yeah uh, 19 maybe um yeah. very and certainly young very young emotionally you know so i was at that that end of my life looking that way yeah. and now i'm at the other side of that should we say looking back in terms of the being over a hill of certain amount of life experience, I see it from, it felt like I, you know, that, that back then I was, the, 
I was I was on the other side to the poet's voice. You know, it felt like it was a, it was an attempt to make sense of the world through rock and roll and history somehow. You know, but the rock and roll was to the foremost. Now I look back on it and I and I see it from the other side. I see it with a lot of life history, a lot more loss, mm-hmm. and a lot more understanding of um, the nature of the world that one <laughs> lives in historically, and a different understanding of of um, what what a rock and roll suicide is, which when you're young feels oh, you know it feels big and important and something to, to aspire to mm-hmm. or to, mm-hmm. to or to to fetishize or to worship or to mm-hmm. it has a power and a potency because you can't imagine living past thirty you know it, you, it it's sort of you don't want to be the man you don't want to and then you grow up and you you know all the good things that come with that and all the sad things that come with that and so I would say I look I feel it feels and it's only now that you're asking me about it it feels very binary to me it feels like there was one understanding of it and now there's a there's a a, a richer understanding of it from the point of view of being closer to the age of the man who wrote the poem The Death by Heroin of Sid Vicious There, but for the clutch of luck, go I. At daybreak, in the arctic fog of a February daybreak, shoulder-length helmets in the watchtowers of the concentration camp caught me out in the intersecting arcs of the swirling searchlights. There were at least a zillion of us caught out there, like ladybirds under a boulder. But under the microscope, each of us was unique. Unique, and we broke for cover, crazily breasting the barbed wire, and some of us made it to the forest edge. But many of us did not make it. Although their unborn children did, such as you, whom the camp commandant branded Sid Vicious of the Sex Pistols. Jesus break his fall. There, but for the clutch of luck, go we all. That was, of course, Fiona with the gift reading at the end there. Our thanks to Paul Durkin for allowing us to share the poem and indeed to John for coming in and having that wonderful conversation with us and giving us his time and his incredible connection to poetry and the story around this particular poem and for allowing us to share it with you. Um, We don't often talk about this, but because it came up in the conversation with John and Mm. because it does feel really pertinent to the poem in particular, is that, you know, he was talking about Paul Durkin's voice, the voice as in the spoken voice Mm. of the poet. And he has got this uh, incredibly resonant and powerful, powerful voice. So I would encourage people to go and find... I'm not sure if there's a recording out there online of Paul Durkin reading this particular poem, but it'd be great for people to go and um, see what they can find of Paul online of him reading his own work. 
So we were saying earlier about having heard from a few people in a number of ways and obviously that invitation is very much there for people to be in touch to nominate the poem that's been a friend to them through the website in that easy way that is there. And also I was just thinking quite often people get in touch and they give us a lovely kind of piece of feedback generally around what they've enjoyed listening to. Sometimes it's off the back of a very particular episode but I'd be really interested if anybody is listening and they've got a particular episode that is their favourite so far. Mm. Or I partly because I was talking to someone who's listening the other day and they told me that they they listened to one episode in particular a number of times. Really? And that it's a sort of going back to that episode. So it just I hadn't thought of that being a possible way that people might be being with the episode. So if you've got a particular episode you've enjoyed. So it's like the episode has become a friend to them. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Um, I've just got one more thing to say before we wrap up, Fee. And do get in touch and let us know. Uh, give us a, a review and a rating on iTunes. All that stuff really helps us. Um, subscribe to the newsletter as well as to the podcast. That's uh, will give you all the information about uh, any future events we've got coming up. And uh, just one more thing, if you possibly can, we've got a, a donate button on the website. Uh, anything you can spare really helps us. We're going to be um, investing in some new microphones shortly to try and improve the quality of your listening experience. So we'll be back in a month with another poem, another friend. Until then, thank you for listening. <laughs>